back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 132 today. Uh, we're going to be talking with author Donald Carroll about his new book. And uh, it's, it's, it's a great book. I've started reading it. It's called The Spirit of Light Cubit. And um, if you haven't checked it out, check it out. I have the link down below. Uh, you can go purchase that on Amazon. And um, again, I set up a new website for us. It's mindescapepodcast.com. And... Um, like our channel, subscribe to our channel. And um, so what's going on, Donald? Welcome on the show. Well, Mike, Maurice, thanks for inviting me. Uh, just uh, like, I, like I said, going on, just the new book uh, that's out and that uh, trying to make some awareness of, but just part of the journey. And to me, this this is a culmination of 17 years that uh, has been a fascinating journey. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Uh, I read a little bit about your bio. So you were a fire, uh, a fireman, or a uh, first responder before you got into this stuff. Uh, yeah, both. That was in South Florida. I was in fire rescue uh, for about thirty-three years. So we did the fire side, and we also were the paramedics. Mm. So covered all the bases and was in that career for thirty-three years, in the midst of my the rest of my journey. <laughs> Did you ever see anything like, you know, near death type stuff that was kind of unexplainable from that, that kind of doing that work? Uh, I would, I wouldn't say, yeah, I saw a lot of near death as a paramedic, right. you know, it just, the scenes were on, but as for anything, I guess we, you consider along uh paranormal side, I would say, no, I mean, I, held the hand of a lot of people that were, uh, I was the last one they talked to, yeah. but, uh, that was part of the journey of realizing that there's more than to us than just our physicality and that this is just the way station, you know, of our conscious journey and consciousness and gave me a, 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 a great, uh, and deep respect of, of our lives, but it also, uh, it also taught me there's more. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have any, as you said, kind of paranormal. Uh, you you have to really be focused in in the reality that's around us because sure. you your priority is, you know, the people and property that are in chaos. They call you to hopefully, you know, uh, alleviate that for them. Yeah. No, I was just curious because we uh, yeah. we focus a lot on that too, like near death experiences and possible dimethyltryptamine release, maybe when you're passing or something along those lines. So um, that's why I was just curious if you saw anybody, maybe or somebody that came back and said I saw this or had some sort of a crazy uh, experience. But uh, so l when we talk about your book, um, why don't you give a little bit of background? Um, that you you write about about the qubit and ancient civilizations and the knowledge sure. they had oh sure i mean this like i said uh started uh, almost uh, two decades ago and the title itself the uh the spirit of light qubit is actually the translation of an egyptian 
ancient Egyptian unit of measurement called the Akume, which means spirit of light cubit. Cubit's actually a Latin term that they've done a catch-all for ancient measurements uh, later on. Uh, interesting, as kind of as you said, people are like, oh, okay, so what? They had a measurement. We all have measurements. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that Indiana Jones... Uh, kind of sexy adventure in the jungle or whatever, finding the, you know, missing pyramids or, or gold. But it actually, for whatever reason, it, it you talked of synchronicities and uh, kind of being guided or, you know, in, inspiration or intuition. But something caught my eye about when I was reading, I happened to be reading about a unit of measurement in ancient Egypt of 27 and a half inches that I wasn't familiar with. It's not what you would hear about most of the time if you did a quick Google, you know, on uh, measurements in Egypt, because it took me a long time actually to confirm that Egypt used that measurement. And uh, I did, I did find it. And once I found it and found the proper name for it, so to speak, uh, then that gave me the threads to really follow it. And so uh, it then took me down the rabbit hole, you know, and it uh, really uh, uh, widened the experience. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be able to um, explore, travel and explore to Egypt several times and, you know, other sites in South America and over in, uh, you know, the British Isles and down in Peru. And following that path and, and researching them, have been able to, fortunate enough to be at many of these sites, uh, and then also the reading and researching the aspects of them, finding that, that there's such a depth. And, you know, all too often we think, oh, these are ancient. If they're ancient, they must be primitive and far from it. Right. You know, far from it. They, uh, uh, they are uh, m- much more advanced than their consciousness. And so that journey, you know, started with that and then finding out that just how uh, – important measurements is and and quite honestly i mean we have time but this this unit of measurement i would call it almost for ancient civilizations that were really they hadn't separated their science and spirituality like we have today you know neither the twain shall meet it's kind of like church and state right you know in the ancient times they uh you know they kept their science and spirituality were still united and and were synergistic with each other. they They really uh, you know kept that unity uh, with them. And what I've through the years, what I finally discovered really and put together was that this unit of measurement is what I would call an elegant equation. That's a math term. like, you have Einstein's equals MC squared. That's a real simple, basic equation. You could say, oh, yeah, that's an easy little equation. Mm-hmm. But what that equation means, the right. depth behind that equation right, right, right. Is, is massive, you know, to art, to, you know, to physics and everything else today. Well, this unit of measurement, what it ends up meaning both in ancient civilizations technology and their spiritual philosophy, to me, is very close to the same thing. It's almost like a uh, ancient civilization's theory of everything, and they combined their science and spirituality in this measurement. Uh, it, it, I know it sounds like a lot, but it uh, everything I found, I it 
it really put me back on my heels and really showed the evidence for a lost civil, a global lost civilization at least 20,000 years ago. Mm. Yeah, I mean, do you think that that might be related to how, you know, the Egyptians call Zeptepi or something along those lines? Yeah, Zeptepi, their first time, you know, the beginning right. times when, when gods, you know, worked, uh, walked on the, uh, uh, on the earth, as they put it. Uh, I would say yes, in that when we, almost all cultures, when enough time has passed, where they've lost their memories, uh, they become mythologies. Uh, and I'm actually really quoting Plato when Plato talked about Atlantis mm-hmm. in, Tim, in Timius and Critias, uh, uh, uh He talked there, and he was actually in Plato. He's saying an, an Egyptian priest, interesting enough, who was telling him this is that we we think we're old, but we were young civilizations, and that. It, Ancient civilizations before, that have come before us and then and have been lost or destroyed due to uh, uh, extraterrestrial, you know, uh, celestial events. When I uh, I shouldn't say events that thousands of years ago that you we could say, forgot. You could say extraterrestrial in the show. I mean, people will know. You, well, you weren't meaning aliens no, necessarily. No, I'm not meaning ET. I'm meaning like solar events or or or. Right. or or like an asteroid or a comet like strike. Like the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis. Yes. Yeah. Well, which is getting more and more evidence. I write about that in the book. Yeah, we're on board with that one, I think. Yeah, with the Hiawatha Glacier, where they uh, just recently found because of the global warming, yeah. the melt of the glacier, there appears the evidence of a 19-mile-wide crater. <laughs> yeah, I think they found another one wow. under the ice that, near there, too. Yes. Yeah, there's a second one. They can't date. And then for, for about that Younger Dryas, that YDB Younger Dryas uh, event or Younger Dryas boundary, uh, they have found what they call that black mat when archaeologists dig down mm-hmm. to that date level of uh, about 12,500 years ago or so uh, that they come to a black mat, which is just burned material. Yeah, like microspherials uh, and... Um... The shock quartz. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. I mean, um, we've had like George Howard on the show before and, and others that, you know, talking about the uh, hypothesis and all that. And obviously, we follow Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson and all those guys. So, uh, but yeah, I think that. So, a qubit, though, it translates to what, 18 inches modern? Well, day? this. <laughs> Well, that's, this is the interesting part because one of the things I had to uh, learn it and dig through is and unlearn, mm. I guess you could say, in a, about ancient cultures. Because as I said, the, the term cubit is a Latin term. It's not the term ancient Egyptians used. They weren't using Latin, Latin 5,000 years right, ago. Right, right. You know, and so cubit became a term in during European Latin times uh, that they started using for all measurements. I mean, you have... Right now, you have three different Egyptian cubits. You have uh, a Hebrew cubit. You have Babylonian cubits. None of those cultures called them cubits, but it's been used as a catch-all. Interestingly, this unit of measurement, which is is in the hieroglyphs, uh, the Aku may, and the Egyptian word, and I should say hieroglyphs that transliterate, we transliterate into words, uh, may, M-H-H, 
is used for if they talk about the Egyptian royal cubit or the Egyptian little cubit, the Neches may or the Nesu may. Mm. The Egyptian term for what we call cubit would be may, M-E-H. So cubit, as you said, you know, that because it in Latin that means elbow. So fingertip to elbow. Right, right. Was was that. And but cubits run anywhere from fifteen inches to twenty eight inches. Right. If you've got a seven foot culture. dude, you know, his yeah. right, his forearm's <laughs> gonna be a lot bigger than somebody that's five feet tall, that's for sure. But that's why our, you know, when I found, you know, this again, the they said here's this twenty seven half inch uh unit of measure. And so that got me into, well, where did ancient measurements come from? Like you were asking a cubit. Well, it's from body proportions. That's mm. where, you know, if you think about, you know, we call, you know, we use today a foot. Well, that was codified off the length of a, a human being's foot. Now, n- probably none of us have a foot that's actually 12 inches, but they codified it, averaged it. That okay, a foot's twelve inches. I mean, we still measure horses by hands. Right. Sixteen, eighteen hand horse. You know, your center of chest or you know, center of the chest out, you know, to the your fingertip is a yard. If you actually uh, if you're familiar with the, the Vitruvian man, I mean that incredible uh ink and paper drawing by Da Vinci. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it that's about the body proportions, human proportions, mm. because he, he, the reason it's called the Vitruvian man is he dedicated it to Vitruvius who lived 1500 years earlier than Da Vinci. He was a, a, a Roman engineer and architect uh, about 50 BC that wrote a 10 volume set of books on engineering and architecture. And in it, he stated particularly, especially for sacred sites, temples, churches, sacred sites, that human body proportions should be used for the measurements of the construction of these sites. Since the human body was divinely created, so what better uh, proportions to use for a sacred site? Mm. And and that's what, if if you can picture it in your mind, if you remember the picture of the Vitruvius, uh, the Vitruvian man, one of the famous things that da Vinci did was he squared the circle. Right. The Vitruvian man is both in the square and the circle, which is a mathematical impossibility at, at the time. Mm-hmm. Still, still uh, uh, the uh, impossible conundrum of with a, with a straight edge and compass, you can't square the circle. But that's in math. What he's showing in the human body, you could square the circle. Mm. Yeah, that's he's an interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. Who who's masters painting from only doing ten what ten twelve paintings? I mean, it's it's uh-huh. and then doing all the um, the stuff you mentioned and the drawings and then the diagrams and also the military application stuff. I mean, he was just um, I mean that. And then there's that weird anecdote about him disappearing in the cave for however long and then emerging a master at all these different things. So it's like, what's going on there? There's something weird, but, uh, yeah, we've tried to speculate on our thoughts on that, but we never will know, I guess. Uh, well, yeah. And yeah, going back to his, uh, time, I mean, Da Vinci, uh, he, the guy, again, like you said, was incredible. What a polymath. Mm-hmm. And like I said, with that drawing too, because, and it's been shown to how much symbolism, you know, he would use in his drawings too, because one of the things with the Vitruvian man is that the circle 
as symbolism has been known for thousands of years to represent the divine, the heavens, mm -hmm. the universe as a circle, whereas the square represents the materiality, the the earth, the four the four corners of the earth, right. the four you know the four directions of the wind. So in that picture, he's, you know, he's kind of also showing in math you may not be able to square the circle, but in the human being you can square the circle and bring heaven and earth together. Mm. You know, yeah, we that. are the living impossible or something along those lines. Well, yeah, you can bring heaven and earth together if you and if you look all these sites like the ones I've written about, whether it's the uh, the Great Pyramid, whether it's Stonehenge, whether it's Chichen Itza, whether it's the Great Kivas of the uh, ancestral pueblos. They're, they're all considered axis mundis, which is again going back to Latin, right. but axis mundi meaning where heaven and earth come together. Yeah, and Da Vinci's got yeah. that painting uh, Salvatore Mundi, where or Mundi, where mm -hmm. he's holding the crystal ball, and it almost looks like there's a distorted Orion's belt looking thing in the crystal ball. Uh, that's uh, that's an interesting, and there's a lot of hidden symbolism in his in his work as well. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely, and like I said, from that. And looking at that and then learning that, oh, okay, ancient measurements came from body, you know, the canon, the canon of body proportions, uh, I mean, for thousands and thousands of years. And their importance were, were reflecting or connecting with the divine, you know, your, your, your physical buildings mm -hmm. to, to honor them. So I got into, well, okay, where did 27 and a half inches came from? Tw you know, 12 inches, the foot, four inches, the hand, 36 inches, you know, center of chest out to fingertip. Well, and it, it's, it's kind of interesting because this is where the, the, the deeper part of the rabbit, rabbit hole started, I guess you could say, was that I was like, okay, 27 and a half inches, what body you know, proportion, leg, et cetera, uh, could be 27 and a half inches. And once I, once I discovered what I'm pretty sure where is where it came from, everything was so clear. I mean, it was hidden in plain sight. Mm -hmm. You could say it wasn't truly hidden, but if you didn't know 27 and a half inches is the length of the spine mm -hmm. of the human spine. You know, the human spine, average human male spine is 27.9 inches, according to Gray's Anatomy, not the TV show, but the medical book. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's less than a half inch difference. I mean, it's that close to it. Right. And I was like, oh, my gosh, for sacred sites, I mean, that is so perfect. You know, and I, what an ideal symbolic measurement to use is the spine i mean in the eastern traditions it's very straightforward the spine was the path of the kundalini to raise your consciousness up how buddha reached enlightenment was by raising his kundalini up you know in his consciousness and kundalini raises up through the central nervous system through through the spine it means coiled serpent mm -hmm. and raise and raising that consciousness up uh and there and i'm like of course, what better? Because sites that you're supposed to raise your consciousness, connect heaven and earth together, connect your, your consciousness with God consciousness or universal consciousness, whatever term you want to use. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is, in, in, and serpent symbolism, and we can discuss it because it's actually not very accurate, is very positive in 
cultures around the world, Christianity has an issue with it, but it's kind of a... a well, it depends uh, just, on what kind, right? I mean, Gnosticism's the opposite. Well, but in actual, in Christianity, it is positive, but it just, you might say the serpent had a really bad PR guy. And, yeah, they and misinterpreted Genesis. the whole story or something well, along those lines. But there are many more positive ones afterwards mm-hmm. uh, in, in that. I mean, in in just really briefly, I'll give you two in the Old Testament where Moses in the desert, you know, during Exodus, when the the Hebrews are, you know, have fallen off and, and are getting in trouble, and they go to Moses to ask to help, and he goes and speaks with God, and God says, "Well, create a bronze or fiery serpent, raise it up mm-hmm. on a serpent on on a staff, and all who uh, will look at it will be saved." Very positive connotation, because then you go to New Testament. Jesus says, "As Moses raised the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man." Mm. Pa, you know, right. Even if you if you remember the movie, you know, uh, ten, the classic Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, you know, what happened when he went out in the or you check the Bible, he goes out in the desert, you know, when he runs away from, you know, and he was a, you know, uh, Egyptian prince, right. uh, runs away and then speaks to God and, and God tells him, hey, tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. And, and Moses goes, hey, he's not going to listen to me. You know, right. I'm just going to know I talk to you. He says, what's that in your hand? Staff. He says, drop it. Turns into a serpent. Right, right, right. That's yeah. a classic scene. Oh, oh yeah. Uh-huh. And all past. Then Aaron did it when he did. So you have, a, there's actually a lot, you know, new back to New Testament. Jesus tells his disciples to go out, preach the, the, the good news. He says, be as wise as serpent as ge- and gentle as doves. Right. I always smile about that because he combined the serpent and the doves. So he, he made a winged serpent just like Kukul Khan or Quetzalcoatl. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very interesting. So there's actually a lot of positive connotation, but it's much more symbolic in the Western traditions than the Eastern traditions. They understood it, you know, that it, it it's always about raising it up. You know, right. you might say, you know, that the, the classic concept, it's the serpent in the grass that'll get you in trouble, the right. low serpent. The risen, the upright serpent or plumed winged serpent is ra- bringing that consciousness up to that higher level, which will keep you out of trouble. I kind of look at it as an energy, and just like any energy, if you, it's like electricity. If you don't know what you're doing with it, it'll hurt you. Sure. You know? <laughs> if you know what you're doing with it, you know, you'll do fine. But, I mean, there is, I mean, so like in Gnosticism, mm-hmm. the, the one, there's this, we are basically prisoners of this, uh, faulty material realm that was created by Yaldo Oath, where he wasn't the tr- one true God and he thought he did, but he made an inferior copy. And then in the Garden of Eden, the serpent is actually the one true God telling us, you know, to eat from the, the fruit of good and evil so that we will know what it's like to, you know, something along those lines. Well, there, there are several... We could really go off on a tangent here. There are several versions of Gnosticism. That's right, one okay, of them. Yeah. You know, there that's one one interpretation. Uh, the Gnosticism, the concept of knowing, yes, makes sense. The logos, the word, mm-hmm. knowing, uh, and really, I would say what I'm talking about here is in raising your consciousness up, you know, into enlightenment. Buddha's enlightenment, it, becoming a bodhisattva, you know, sure. uh, heaven, bringing heaven after earth. It's the same concept of the Western tradition of becoming a saint 
or if you'd like, say, the more Judaic tradition of becoming a prophet. Mm. It's the same thing. You're raising your consciousness up to a, uh, a, a higher consciousness or connecting, call it back with the universal consciousness. And the avenue, the physical avenue is your central nervous system, your spine. Right. Uh, and that, and that's in cultures, it's generally uh, seen as a, uh, uh, the symbolism is the serpent, because that's one of the things, too. If you look at, and it's in the book, I, I put it in the book because you oh, can't the, the picture. see it. If you look at a picture of the spine yeah. and you look at a serpent, it looks just like a serpent. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it looks, and it's like, of course they called it the coiled serpent. It's, it's it hits you right in the face. Right. And so once, you know, that kind of, you know, you see that and like, oh my gosh, uh, hidden in plain sight. Then you go to, we'll start with, we can, we can start with the, uh, you know, the Great Pyramid, the Giza Plateau. We call it right. the Giza Plateau today. It's not what the ancient Egyptians called it. The ancient Egyptians called it the Plateau, the plateau of Rastu, which means the gateway to other worlds, mm. the opening, you know, the opening. And it was dedicated to Osiris, mm -hmm. their god Osiris, whose symbol is the Dejet which is a uh, Egyptian hieroglyph. Yeah, the pillar with the hands lifting it up, or oh, yeah. alongside, yeah. Yeah, the pillar with the, the hands alongside, and it, it's got the four uh, horizontal lines. Right. Well, if you look up Dejed in the hieroglyphs and its interpretations, it's translated as Osiris's spine. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many Beautiful. ways are they going to tell us that, you know? Yeah, hey, there's a lot of people that thought that think that that was some sort of ancient technology that was producing some sort of electrical or uh, well, some sort of power. But it, you could use it as like what you're saying as an analogy for that as well. Well, it, it is that energy, right. but it's that Kundalini energy. The, the ancient Egyptians actually even had, and it was actually a pre-dynastic, so more than 5,000 years ago, they had a ceremony called Raising the Dejed. Mm. Just like raising the Kundalini, right. like like I said, once I figured out that oh, twenty seven and a half inches is the spine, and oh my God, the spine looks just like a serpent. Right, this all fits. Well, there's that yeah. picture circling around on the internet too, all over Instagram, where it's just the brain and the spine. It says, "This is all you are," which is true, <laughs> which is pretty much true. I mean, the rest of us is well, what just about like the an, gut, baby. Well, no, I mean it's just the encasing of everything. I mean, the gut just holds most of our serotonin, which is obviously very important. Yeah. But um, yeah. you know, I think that uh, that symbolism is very powerful. And like you said, there's the connection not just from ancient Egypt and all those civilizations, but also the Eastern. Um, uh, world, you know, with uh, ancient, uh, the, uh, I'm sure part of the Indo-Iranian uh, migration that happened and all those cultures as well. Well, and the thing is that the, everyone is saying the same thing from their perspective, you know, mm -hmm. from where they, where they stand from their perspective, the, ex, the kind of ex analogy I, I, I use to that, if you've ever been in those, uh, buildings or townhouses like that are built on a hill and if you're on one side of it you know on the lower side of the hill it's a three-story building you know but if you drive mm -hmm. around the other but if you drive around the other side of it it's only two stories right, because you're right. on the top of the hill well if, if you and your buddy had never been there before and say we'll meet at this address and he's on the north side and you're on the south side and you call on your cell phones, one of you is going to say, I'm by a three-story building. The other is going to say, but you're by a two-story building, and you're both going to argue that you're in the wrong place. 
but you're not. You're looking at the same building, just different perspectives. And mm-hmm. so much of the spiritual philosophy is the same way. But if, again, you go back into the serpent symbolism, Egyptians, the Uraeus, you know, the through the forehead, the the third eye, if you want uh, mm-hmm. the symbolism. And I talk of other serpent symbolism in in the uh, that the the Nagas, uh, the Mukalinda, who protected right. Buddha to get the serpents there. The Mayans, the Aztec, Kukul Khan, Quetzalcoatl, uh, the ancient Pueblans, you know, had again all positive, uh, you know, serpent symbolism in all their cultures and it was about energy right. but it was about you know they saw energy you know as uh, you know our our life force energy right you know, which is you, you want to call it electricity you want to call it you know uh, whatever energy is energy it just depends on what part of the uh, spectrum it's on but you know they all ha- you know had this and so they were actually from their perspective using all these different traditions and and really from what i found was this this evidence uh for this uh lost civilization their goal in in their societies of as they advance their cultures you could say in their in their physical aspects and their technology was to also evolve their consciousness, to raise their consciousness up, because mm-hmm. all these sites were designed uh, for exactly that. And this measurement works at all these sites. And I quote in the book that your archaeologists will tell you if you if you have find the same unit of measurement in use uh, at at in different societies and different cultures, or or uh, similar ones like doubles of it or halves of it, you know, versus the exact measurement, but doubles or triples of it. It means either they had common ancestors mm-hmm. or or strong communication of some trade of some sort. And this is over four continents, which is like way before they said it was possible. But the evidence is pretty clear. Mm. So we're t- obviously not talking about Atlantis, because Atlantis would have been closer to the timeline of Gobekli Tepe, somewhere along there. But so you're saying this this civilization was even probably eight to ten thousand years before Gobekli Tepe. Well, Atlantis and Gobekli Gobekli Tepe, you know the 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 one they've excavated is at ninety. They they're saying right now the evidence is ninety six hundred BC. Right now now there are like twenty one more uh, of those Stonehenge type Gobekli. At, uh, at Gobekli that are still buried, they haven't excavated yet. Right, and they've and they've said from the ground penetrating radar in their studies that it could actually go back to some of the ones that are still non-excavated could could go back to twelve thousand BC. So that's a v- incredibly ancient site. As for Atlantis, you know that's you know Plato puts its destruction at around 10 10,000 call it 10,000 BC some say 104 some say 96 right but but in 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 either case it's about a lost civilization that disappeared at that time how long it went on before then which those dates all fit the younger dryas hypothesis of the comet strike right you know where we would have lost those so the uh, mine is along the lines be, uh, uh, of 
the the archaeologists uh, with excellent pedigrees uh, have that uh, Salutrian theory, the Salutrian culture that was around 20,000 BC in northwest France mm. uh, by the North Atlantic in an area of northwest France is called. Car- is that by Karnak? That that site over there. Uh, yes, yes, uh, by up by Karnak. You know, now they've come out. Dr. Paulson's come out, and and they're they've written papers that first they track to 7,000 years ago, 5,000 BC in that Karnak area mm-hmm. of, of of Brittany, that there was a seafaring megalithic stone circle building culture that is responsible for Stonehenge and for all the stone circles that you find in Karnak and along France in the British Isles. Right. And Dr. Uh, uh, Michael Parker Pearson, who is like considered the expert of Stonehenge, if you ever watch a Stonehenge special, special uh, he's talking on it. He is, he is the expert of Stonehenge, has agreed with her conclusions that the Stonehenge builders came you know, started from 5000 BC uh, and came from this area of France and Brittany, and they were seafaring. Right now, th- now what's interesting: the Salutrian culture is in that same area, we, but they're at 20,000 BC, and they were in the Iberian Peninsula into Spain and Portugal, but right. also France in that same area. And the Salutrian points and the Salutrian tools have been found in North America on the uh, United States coast on in five different sites. Right. So, and again, high pedigree of the archaeologists that have put forth the solution theory that 20,000 years ago they came across from Europe. Right. Well, we've had, so, uh, we've had Laird Scranton on and he has, you know, he's written books on this topic mm-hmm. and he's, you know, his one of his books, Scarabray, talks about how the Egyptians might have even came from northern Scotland and found their way over to Egypt, and that's kind of um, where that came from. Uh, so, I mean, what you're saying though is, so where is the hub of this ancient um, civilization that you're talking about in your book? Okay, there's the rub because I'm, I have. The, I get a little OCD about my research and, and getting empirical, I guess you could say, sure. of, of making sure. Now, I've found this unit of measurement in Egypt. I've found it uh, in, Stone, in Stonehenge, as an example. Mm-hmm. I found it in the Great Kivas. Being, actually, let me, let me back up. It's documented by the archaeologists and, and confirmed in Egypt that there was this akume or this unit of this 27 and a half unit of measurement in ancient Egypt in, uh, in incredibly in the ancestral Pueblins of North America. Uh, they, uh, the archeologists there in have just documented in the Pica- the Pacami culture of Casa Grandes, which is in, uh, the an- ancestral Pueblin society just south of Arizona, mm-hmm. that the unit of measurement they used was 27 and a half inches, mm-hmm. the, sa- the same as the Egyptians. The Maya, arch- the Maya researchers have researched because, you know, you don't build great houses, you don't build kivas, you don't build temples and uh, pyramids, whether Mayan or Egyptian, that last thousands of years without being very good engineers and architects and scientists. Well, the Mayans, they're in, and then the, the having units of measurements, the Maya uh, 
the uh, researchers down there came to the conclusion that they used a unit of measurement of 55 inches, mm-hmm. uh, called a zapal, which is twice 27 and a half inches. So you have the same unit of measurements uh, there, uh, and then st- and then in the Indus Valley, you know where Pakistan is now, mm-hmm. and the Harappan uh, culture, they the unit of measurements they've determined there are uh, 27 and a half inches is 70 centimeters. They use it's 35 centimeters, and they as a, a, a single foot, and they use what they call the double foot of 70 centimeters of 27 and a half inches. So here you have all these cultures over four continents using the same unit, showing that there's been communication of some sort. And they all, again, with the serpent, you know, all these sacred sites, serpent symbolism of raising axis, mundi, heaven and earth, connecting sites to raise consciousness. In mm-hmm. and, and Stonehenge, and I'll put this because this is the one, because there's a lot of debate over the units of measurements used for the, the megalithic uh, Stonehenge circles, Avebury, et cetera. Right. But besides Alexander Tomb, who my measurement fits into his megalithic rod, if you use 27 and a half inches to measure the circle, the stone, cir- the circles at Stonehenge, and I was able to get because Stonehenge, you know, the classic pictures we see of it, there are actually two stone circles: the Priscilla uh, blue stones on the inside circle, then the classic large. Uh, Saracen stones that we see, you know, that are just huge, but they're actually the remains of post holes mm-hmm. of further circles, you know, that they use post in right, and they're right. marked there. Well, I was able to get the, the measurements. I was able to get a plan, a survey plan of Stonehenge with the di- measurements of diameters. If you measure those diameters of all those circles with 27 and a half inches, your results are the fir- blue stone. It's 33 units across the saracen stones 44 the post holes are 55 66 and 77 mm. I, th- I think it's more than coincidence right that that unit of measurement gets you that results right so all this is to get to your and i'm i know it's roundabout but to show no this is arc- good i mean we like you know if if, if you're going to explain something uh, I, you you have a good better foundation. It. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> if the more evidence, the better, in my opinion. So well, and that was what took so long in this because it was like, like the results. I when I I just this last year, probably eight nine months ago, is when I was able to find a, a peer reviewed study of the ancestral pueblans determining their unit of measurement of twenty seven and a half inches, mm. because. I'd been going to Chaco Canyon, which is an incredible uh, Puebloan site, and Mesa right, Verde right. and Aztec National. I'd been writing and talking about them saying, you know, this unit of measurement gives you incredible results, but that was my independent research, not from the ancestral Puebloan archaeologists. Right. So when that, when that paper came out, I'm like, I have for every site the archaeologists' papers themselves saying these are the measurements. So, yeah, I get into that, hey, and according to the archaeologists, that means they all had communication with each other. Right, right. 
Well, I think did um, Thor Heyerdahl prove that people were probably getting around a lot more than we previously thought, and with the land bridges and, you know. Well, Kantiki, yeah, and then even, again, with Dr. Uh, Paulson, with her 5000 B.C. Uh, uh, seafarers, and the same thing that uh, uh, they're saying the uh, they're saying with the now the Salutrians, mm-hmm. and again this goes back is that whether you want to call them Salutrians or Proto Salutrians, since this was basically destroyed by that probably a comet strike about twelve thousand years ago. Yeah, there was a there was a culture, and I don't know how far it went back before then. Prior to that time, that was advanced enough. And again, I'm very conservative with trying to uh, ascertain this. I would say prior to uh, 12, 13,000 years ago, there was a global uh, reaching culture. I would say probably at least to the level, I would say the level of the 18th century, which is would be 1700s of seafaring of the 1700s, you know, at least sail seafaring, which it was in the 1400s, you know, and before we were getting to North America, they circumnavigated the globe in the mm-hmm. early 1500s. So uh, there's no reason, uh, I think, that w- there wasn't a culture at that level that had reached out and had gotten across, like I said, four nations, you know, four uh, continents, and you know, the evidence is there, and an ocean, and the evidence of their abilities, technology are there, and a lot of archaeologists are now pushing it to then. But then I'm taking that unit of measurement also that, you know, they were also sharing a spiritual philosophy at the same time, you know, because I there's evidence of serpent symbolism. I don't like to say serpent worship, but the symbolism of serpent, uh, you know, the concept of raising consciousness. Right. Goes back they have documentation going back of, of that concept going back seventy thousand years. Well, yeah, and I think that, uh, I mean, there's, look, we were talking a little bit before this started, but, I mean, I've seen rainbow serpents in meditation and in psychedelic states and in all other altered states. So that is, I'm not saying that that's the source, but obviously any sort of inspiration or um, there's something going on metaphysically that we just can't wrap our heads around. But maybe some of these ancient people had a better understanding since they weren't uh, bogged down with, the stuff that we have today where we're cut we're AD, everybody's add it's phones and tvs <laughs> and nobody's looking at the stars nobody's connected to the earth so i think that um maybe they had a, a different sort of a knowledge that we have kind of lost touch with over the years well they took it i would agree absolutely that they, they took a different path mm-hmm. than we did rather than kind of splitting the way we did uh, our technology, our science, and our and our in our spirituality, and I understand why that happened, you know. But they did not do that. I mean, the rain, the concept, of the rainbow serpent goes back to the Australian Aborigines right. and their creation, yep. and their creation, you know. And then we're also getting back to sevens again, you know, rainbow serpent. Rainbow is seven colors. Your seven chakras of your nagas and your mukalinda of raising that up. If you look when the the serpent of light is created on the uh, in Chichen Itza on the Kukulkan pyramid during the equinoxes. It creates seven triangular coils in the process. So there are certain almost uh, archetypes 
you know, as that serpent in certain numbers that seem to come up in almost a collective consciousness of, of humanity. And I really think that prior, and I don't know how further back it goes, but prior to 12, 13,000 years ago, that there was an advanced culture reaching all these continents, you know, and sharing a similar spiritual philosophy, mm. you know, and this was all tied together, you know, it, this is why it's so elegant. It was tied together with this unit of measurement. Not only was it used to construct these sacred sites to raise consciousness, to bring heaven and earth together, if you will, it was also symbolic and representative. Rep, uh, representing the, the that spiritual energy of that serpent kundalini energy at the same time. Mm. I mean, so they brought together in this beautifully elegant way their spirituality and their science in this unit of measurement. And actually, our archaeologists will say any culture that that creates a system of measurements, that a system of measurements are as important as language. Mm because it is a language of its own and it shows their mental capacity. And it also, again, quoting them, they'll tell you it was important in how they connected to their physical realm around them and their spiritual realm, because it also connected them to their heavens right. and, and their cosmological concepts. Now here's, the, and I'll give you the final kicker. Of course, now I get people, you don't have to read my book because I'm telling you, but <laughs> it no, was- people still will read the book, no, trust me. No, I'm, I'm kidding, and it's fine because I'm still just so blown away by this because, of course, one of the things I looked at was like, well, where did we get, you know, this is like an international unit of measure, like the meter today. Right. You know, this is like an ancient meter, an international unit of measure. And I was like, well, okay, I figured out where ancient, measurements came from where did the meter come from <laughs> very long story short it took over 200 years because of politics but the, the whole concept in the beginning was to get everyone to share the same uh weights and measures the mm. same measurements and stuff because it makes trade and communication so much easier when everybody's you know playing on the same you know uh scale of music so to speak right and so uh, everybody was on board for this. And so it was how to determine this unit of measurement. There were two finalists. One was measuring the earth from the equator going up to the North Pole and dividing it by 10 million. Mm. Oh, yeah. And the other was, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> and the other was uh, the length of a pendulum. Okay. Because, because at the time... The pendulum, pendulum and clocks were the most accurate timepieces in the world. For 200 years since they had created pendulum clocks, your grandfather clock as an example, right. they were the most accurate timepieces until the 1920s when we got crystal watches, quartz crystals, where they're actually, we're using the resonance of quartz and a ruby, you know, you know, uh, different jewel, jewel watches. So, and one, and it was what they call a second pendulum is that the pendulum swing uh its full period which would be a swing from one side back to its uh to its return is two seconds it's just why you know the gears on the clock work you right, right, right. right so that's a called a seconds or two seconds pendulum 
a little over 39 inches does that. Okay. If you, if you swing it less than 15 degrees side to side. So I'm very fortunate and I continually thank the uh, universities and colleges that allow you to go online on the internet into their physics uh, laboratories, online physics and math uh, laboratories and use their software because you can get software on how pendulums work and you can plug in. Okay, if I make my length of, uh, of a pendulum this long, you know, versus this long, what's the what's the time, what's the second period? Right. You know? Well, you make a well, good point, though, too. So, like, this ancient, everybody connected by this form of measurement and understanding, yeah. uh, because we didn't get modern science, really, until the pre-Socratics of ancient Greece, where we start to see... Uh, natural physics and natural science start to take over. I mean, there was stuff before that, but that's how we would connect most to with our modern science uh, would be to those people per se. Um, but when you look at the symbolism um, across all these civilizations, uh, somebody actually, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you this. Somebody just sure. uh, typed in a question, which I think is a good question. What evidence is there that building these places raises consciousness, meaning that how would a physical location help these civilizations or people raise their consciousness? That's a great question. And uh, the, the, the number one, the, the most straightforward, simplest answer is Stonehenge. If you, re, if you go into the, and it's in the book, in the recent research in Stonehenge, in started in 2006, confirmed, one study confirmed in 2009 and another study confirmed in 2013. What they found now, Stonehenge has kind of partially fallen down. Uh, it's not all there now. They found, but they did find if they're still finding so much on that Salisbury Plain and are still studying Stonehenge itself, uh, they found that there was an interesting resonance inside of Stonehenge coming off the remaining uh uh, pillars, the Saracen stones that are up there, you know, they were getting an interesting resonance and echo mm -hmm. and uh, actually a sound from the stones itself, a very almost tuned sound off to some of the stones. So studies went on and a little bit of a tangent, but it's part of it. Stonehenge has partially fallen. There's actually a full-size replica of Stonehenge in the United States. It's in the state of Washington in the town of Mary, uh, of uh, Mary Hill, okay. about about three hours from uh, Seattle. Very long story while it was there, built in 1923. But mm. since it's completed and it was done to scale, they took their their sound testing there, uh, along with what they're already finding, where the other one did it at Stonehenge itself. Same type what of sto they, stone and everything? Uh, no, the stone in Mary Hill was different. Okay. But again, two different studies. You, you can look them up. Right. I document them and I write about them. But uh, what they found was that either striking the stone, certain stones inside there are actually chanting or like drum beating at a certain cadence will, in, uh, will entrain the brain, you know, uh, uh, brain hemisyncing mm -hmm. that'll occur. will actually will in, entrain the brain and depend on where you are standing inside a Stonehenge, it, the depth, the, the depth of your meditating, uh, level. Uh, standard meditation is an alpha state where your alpha waves go up, your betas, the waves go down. That's pretty much standard meditation. A deep, deep meditation is when you get down into the theta waves. Mm -hmm. 
if you're at, and I'm, it, this is just so amazing. If you are standing in the middle of Stonehenge and the drum beating is going on or chanting, it will put you into an alpha state of meta state meditation. Mm. If you, if you are, uh, towards the uh, outside uh, circle of stones, it will put you in a theta state. What they are theorizing when they discovered this is that they think that the main priest or high priest would come in the center so he wouldn't get totally zoned out, and the initiates would come in into that outer circle of stones to go into a deeper uh, state, uh, into the theta state, and go through a, an initiation process of raising that consciousness in that meditation. So, so would it so be like do, uh, so document it? So it would be like dream time, but with a megalithic structure, kind of like Austri- Aboriginal dream time, but like a chanting or um, uh, uh, some sort of meditated motion or something mixed oh, with a megalithic structure kind of is kind of what you're t- uh, talking about okay. well well meditation you know raising the kundalini raising because again that that changes the chemicals you talked about dmt earlier but yeah. raising that consciousness up you know and uh of that meditation does all of that and they're med- nowadays now they're calling meditation 21st century meditation, they're kind of calling it mindfulness, kind of taking that label off it that some people are uncomfortable with. Right. Mindfulness is a form of meditation. Your your walkabout, you know, as you're talking about for the again for the uh, Aborigines uh, from Australia, the vision quest, mm-hmm. that's a form of meditation. Tai Chi is a form of meditation. Right. Your whirling, your Sufis who do your whirling dervishes, yeah. That you think if you watch whirling dervishes, you're like, whoa, that is actually, that's actually a form of meditation right. yeah. where they get themselves. So even watching it's pretty mesmerizing. Yeah, yeah, for the symbolism in it. But this is where there are many different ways to get into a meditative state. Uh, whether it's walkabouts, whether it's the, the you might call it uh, the yoga, mm-hmm. which is a body positioning or just sitting and, and doing a, an ohm type of um, uh, mindfulness meditation or again from sound i mean the omega institute and others have shown that and they'd show that you know certain sound at certain in fashions or even light for that matter will uh put you in train the brain yeah. and and put you into those states so in answer to that question they've now shown that Stonehenge was actually designed for sound way that way. Mm. So, and I would say uh, the great, they're not sure in the great Kivas, uh, the ancestral Pueblins, if you go in, you can go in the ones that are decommissioned at state parks, the Kivas that are still uh, being used uh, by the Hopi and the Zuni, uh, unless you're invited in, you know, the, those are still their sacred places. But the decommissioned ones, like in state parks, you'll see the great kivas. One of the, what they have in them, at uh, one point, are these two things that they call foot uh, vaults that had coverings, and they think they were foot drums that they were planks covering them. So very possibly to create the same thing, such as Stonehenge, you know, in, in to raise that uh, that psychic. You know, consciousness, energy, you have it there. Let me tell you, you go inside of the Great Pyramid, the acoustics inside the Great Pyramid, and particularly up in the King's Chamber, are incredible. Yeah, there's some serious echo too, right? 
Like you can't even, it's almost like drowning out everything else. Well, you can whisper and hear it up to the top. I mean, I've been groups and we've done meditations up in the King's chamber and you know, the it's, there is a focus there. There are focus these places. And again, too, the key is these are all, these, they're instruments, call them their instruments to help you raise this consciousness because they're all sites of access Monday representing where heaven and earth come together. That's their purpose. The archaeologists will tell you that. Mm. But the thing is the, but Da Vinci in again, in his, in his drawing, Da Vinci tells us the ultimate place where heaven and earth comes together is in ourselves. Mm. We really don't need those places to reach that meditative, that higher consciousness state, but yes, they do help, you know, it's like having those training wheels on the bike (laughs) first and they are incredible. It makes sense. I mean, and there's also what is it, the hypogeum at Malta? That say if free, a lot of these places they vibrate at like 110 or 111 hertz, if I'm not mistaken. It is, um, and obviously that might have something to do with the quartz and some of the stone as well. And and our consciousness and 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 I, like I said, I, I just to wrap up that measurement real quick of how it brings everything together. Sure, is that in a pendulum? If you swing a pendulum of 27 and a half inches at 90 degrees, which would be horizontal. Yeah. You know, a horizontal, if you make a pendulum horizontal of 27 and a half inches, it makes a two second pendulum. Mm. Perfect for two second pendulum. So, and then think about ancient cultures. The horizon was very por- important because the horizon was where heaven and earth came together. When you saw the horizon, the Great Pyramid was known as the horizon of Khufu because the horizon is where that marks the place where heaven and earth come together. And much of their astronomy was horizon astronomy, seeing where stars or sun or the moon, you know, notched into mountains or sites they would mark. Right. So, so the horizon concept also fits. So now you're looking at a unit of measurement that not only measured space as a unit of measurement, it measured time. It represented that meshing of their science and spirituality, and it represented that serpent symbolism of connecting heaven and earth together. Mm. So it was that ultimate, in that one measurement, brought it all together. And if you look at, you know, somewhat what they say, the possible etymology of like the Great Pyramid, what pyramid means? Light measure. Mm. And the name of this unit of measurement in Egypt is called the spirit of light cubit or measure that's it's that's just a good incredible. name for a book <laughs> <laughs> so I, I i had a quick question for sure. you this might be a little uh little strange but do you think that the whole concept of the pyramids being tombs has been implemented by the uh, education system to to deny us the fact that of these these actually were chambers to raise our awareness and take us to a different plane uh, I don't believe the Great Pyramid was a tomb. Uh, any, any mainstream Egyptologist will say, no, they're all tombs. The thing is, there have been about 100 pyramids so far discovered. Uh, you know, there are more, but the ones discovered, uh, and they have not found a mummy, you know, uh, an interment in any of them. Not one. And I And some people will argue that, my caveat is they did find a mummy in one. 
that had, but thankfully due to science and carbon dating were shown that it was put there th- a thousand years later. Mm. You mm. know, that, that, you know, because a lot of times it's not uncommon in many ancient cultures reusing places, you know, reusing tombs or sites as, as such. Right. And in another, and in another one, they found a bull again, put in there later. So I would say, I, I think that's a complicated subject because I really think the Great Pyramid is older than what they dated. Yeah, I was going to ask as, you what you what you think about all the dating stuff and the alternative hypotheses versus the um, the academic you know version of everything. Uh, you know, and again, I, I you know I'm that. What got me on this is I admit I am that doubting Thomas. You know, mm-hmm. I like to stick my finger in the wound, you know, but uh, the, the evidence and my research uh, of has, has found, you know, like this lost global civilization, I think for the Great Pyramid, I believe it is older than uh, 2500 B.C., as they put it. Uh, again, you, you, you've had, you know, uh, uh, Bouval, Dr. Shock and Robert Bouval and Hancock and others yeah. that place it at, at uh, 10,500 approximately BC. And the thing is, I've actually, it was interesting because, you know, they did it with the Orion, you know, you had uh, the Orion uh, alignment of the belt. Right. And, and then Dr. Shock, you know, used the evidence of the age of the Sphinx uh, for it. Uh, I I've actually done it in some different ways. Uh, you know, I have my own planetarium program that can go back to 10,500. You had some other interesting things going on besides the, uh, the Osiris, uh, you know, thing going on. It was a, that, that, uh, as you put that, that Zeb Tepe time, as, as you right. noted earlier, uh, that was an incredible, because the other thing that you had going on in the sky, and I wrote about it and this, I wrote about it a long time ago. Uh, actually, uh, 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 the book I wrote before this one is called Sacred Geometry, Blueprint of Creation. But in that one, at 10,500, what was going on over Egypt, you know you know how they talk about the importance of Deneb? You've probably been hearing about right. the star Deneb. Yep. And, the, and, the, you know, the, the swan, you know, and the uh, swan constellation Cygnus. Yep. Uh, I agree that's important, but I think there's also a, a larger important uh, picture in that because Deneb and the Swan is part of uh, what they call an asterism called the Summer Triangle. Mm. The Summer Triangle is the stars Vega, Deneb, and Altar. And uh, it's huge in the sky. It looks incredible. Right. And it goes east and west. And actually, you have the Winter Triangle in Orion. Mm-hmm. Orion, if you look at Sirius, Sirius, Procyon, and Betelgeuse, which is the shoulder of Orion, create what they call the Great Southern or Great Winter Triangle. Now, here's the interesting thing. Everybody points to Deneb, but ties it to Cygnus the Swan. And there is something to be said there. But it tries it also to this asterism, the Summer Triangle, because at 10,500, those were circumpolar stars, the stars that never set. They were like Polaris today, what we navigate by. Right. You know, but one of the reasons why they said Cygnus and, and Deneb was important back then. Well, you had this triangle of stars back then in the northern sky. And at the same time, in Orion, you had the 
southern triangle of stars. And those two triangles of stars were connected by the Milky Way. Mm. You can see it in the planetarium. It's incredible. So you had a triangle at, at the northern end of the sky that the Milky Way ran through to a triangle at the southern end of the sky in Orion. Well, it's kind of what okay. Serpent Mound in uh, Ohio kind of... That but has, that's... Mm -hmm. Right, but yes, yes, but that's the equinox, if I remember correctly, right, yeah. or, sol or solstice. And, and, all, and the Egyptians and all of these, I mean, um, had knowledge of procession of the equinox, which yes, if you think about now, most people don't even know what that is. If you, you know, <laughs> when we first started talking about that, we'd I'd get emails like, "What does this mean?" You know, so <laughs> sure, um, but yeah, I mean, I think Graham Hancock and those guys have done a good job of bringing these topics to light and putting them in their books and you know familiarizing them. Um, uh, out and getting them out there. So, but, uh, when you look at, uh, your work, is there, is there a next step from here? Do you have ideas of where this might go or is this something uh, that kind of you're like your life's work and it's come to a culmination or what, what's going on with that? Well, you know, when I wrote my first book seven years ago, I'd never, th never thought I'd write a book in the first place, but my research and just, it took on a life of its own. And then as I did that research and as I you know, that book didn't end it. And as I continued that research, uh, you know, where it led to this, uh, it, this is a, the journey of not only humanity, but it's a journey of each individual is our consciousness of, of our life, you know, because if you believe we're more than our, just our physicality, well, then that means we're more than just we are here where our consciousness continues and our journey continues. Right. And I think that's, you know, the purpose it's, it's kind of like the example I use and I, and I, you know, give credit to Thomas Keating, uh, going back to looking at Adam and Eve, when God was asking Adam and Eve, like you mentioned them earlier, where are you? He wasn't asking where they are physically. He was asking about their consciousness, where they were in their consciousness, right. where they're at. Where are you? That's something we should be asking ourselves on a regular basis today as we try to evolve. Our enlightenment Enlightenment is about evolving consciousness. You read Thiel de Chardin, who says that, who was a, a, Je a Jesuit priest, but he was also an, a paleontologist, an anthropologist involved in the uh, work on the Peking man, on human, evolu on human physical evolution. And what he wrote about was that not only was there a human physical evolution we've got to today, but he says there's a human consciousness evolution, mm. that our consciousness is evolving. And as he wrote, and they didn't allow him to write about it until after he actually his family published it after he died because the church wouldn't allow him, as I understand it, to publish it. Who, who is this? Uh, Chardin, C-H-A-R-D-I-N. Uh, okay. T-L- Tail Day Chardin. Because we've done the, uh, an episode, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Claire Graves or the idea of like spiral dynamics. Um, there's like eight steps of consciousness evolution. Um, and it, they kind of, it's like a pendulum that swings back and forth to ideal, different ideals. And then you finally find yourself at a point where you're not predicting things necessarily, but you have a, a general understanding of how everything works and you're able to use that similar, you know, kind of to your advantage, if you will. Well, this is the kind of what he's talking in Chardin is talking about his consciousness and actually Aldous Huxley in the divine within spoke about the same thing. And actually so did Edgar Casey, but the, 
what Chardin n- named is that our our consciousness is evolving to the point of where we'll be able to co- connect with everyone's consciousness on Earth. Mm. That was from Chardin, and but that's just a stage of the evolvement where he says we will get to what he called the Omega point, which is basically universal God consciousness. Mm. Now here was a you know, Jesuit piece, but also a, a paleontologist, anthropologist heavily involved in the, in the in the search of the physical evolution so he combined that not only do we have a physical evolution of you know homo erectus to homo sapien but we have a consciousness evolution and to in your question i see my journey continuing is that hopefully you know continuing evolving my consciousness which is about not necessarily learning more information mm-hmm but raising my consciousness as to that knowing what our purpose is about and that that unity and oneness and, and that uh, illusion of separation we have mm. you know I like that. there was a great yeah and there's a great quote uh, I put it and this is actually from the casey material to grow to learn uh, to to know ourselves to be ourselves yet one with the whole mm. you don't lose it when you connect into that consciousness yeah, there's only a few people that I look to where I think of as like maybe a clairvoyant or somebody that had some sort of extra perception of things. One would be Edgar Casey, another one maybe Rudolf Steiner, um, mm-hmm. another one, um, you know, or just the people that there's there's something to it, you know. And um, actually, um, while we've kind of gotten away from that, we we got into this whole thing kind of from this thing called the Urantia papers, which was like a modern day um, channeled yep. piece. And it's kind of got a weird origin story. And the reason why we got into it, those were huge grateful dead fans. And I saw <laughs> J- J- Jerry Garcia, Jimi Hendrix, Steve, I Stevie Ray Vaughan, they all read this Urantia papers. I'm like, Oh, I got to check this out. Yeah. So, and if you read it, yeah, there's some stuff in there, but it's interesting because it mixes spirituality with, science with you know philosophy and all these different things whether you believe it's true or not actually doesn't really matter because there's certain truths in there that are i think uh um timeless so um yeah i don't know it's it's interesting stuff but yeah i mean it's 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 weird how you know all these things come in and out and you know we were talking about synchronicities um do you get synchronicities while you're doing the research um with Absolutely. these things, yeah, that's what, that's what I was gonna. I, I I figured so, but I just wanted to ask to to see if, because I feel like when you're doing research on these topics, again, it's it's built into like the essence of what this is, and I think that that's what pushes us, right? Is these mysteries of why are we here, what are we doing? While some people might not care or think about it, I think that any way we can get this information out there and get people talking about this stuff, get people thinking about this stuff, um, we can maybe come up with a modern day. Uh, version or understanding of of those concepts well the fact that mindfulness is being accepted i mean the military is teaching mindfulness classes corporations are teaching mindful classes i came from fire rescue i was blown away because i still get emails i'm still you know check in with them they've started offering mindful classes for you know ptsd and stress that you deal with and and jobs like that and i'm like you know and i get it they, they've they've washed it so to speak to take the spirituality uh, 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 terms out of it rather than call it meditation or have it be a tied to a religion right you know versus now it's about our consciousness and this is 
they knew this again. This is one of the things that blew me away. It was like they knew this 30,000 years ago that they were like, our real journey is not is not going across the ocean. It's raising our consciousness, you know, beyond our, our physical selves, because our consciousness is beyond that. Mm-hmm. And and that was, you know, their journey. And it 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 it, it really is that. And I think. You have, it's funny, for some reason, what comes into mind is a, a quote from Herman Hess is that the for the for the bird to be born, it has to destroy its world. Mm. You know, the bird has to just peck its way out of the egg, you know, and 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 and, and destroy its world to be born, to get its wings, to get that. And it's kind of. We have to, it's very difficult. We are just surrounded by physicality. Uh, it, it's it, it part of it. and But we've been given the answers. You know, it's like give on to Caesars what is Caesars. Give on to God or consciousness what is God or consciousness. So we live in a physical world. Mm-hmm. But, but it's a way station. It's like our bodies are vehicles. You know, the our consciousness continues what, with or without our bodies. And yes, uh, you know, some people, well, the only ones I would say that argue that would be atheists. I mean, if you're not an atheist, then you believe in some form or fashion, you know, whatever, it, what makes you comfortable, you believe your con- consciousness continues. Well, you're allowed you to know? believe in the many worlds hypothesis, even though they call sure. it the theory, it's a hypothesis because it can't be tested right now. Um, and you're allowed to believe in stuff like that, where there's infinite amounts of universes where different versions of you are all doing different things and we're, we're, <laughs> we're having a similar conversation in another one, but everything's flipped around, you know, that kind of stuff. You're allowed to believe in that kind of magic, but the magic that you feel, the magic that you know, we are living, breathing material that was created by stars, stardust and the universe. And uh, we're here having this conversation, pondering, living in this thing, what, you know, how, whether the universe is infinite or there's many of them, whatever the case may be, the fact that we're here and we're talking about it, I don't know how you can't, I think about this stuff, not daily necessarily, but pretty regularly. How, how can you just think that this is normal just to wake up and be a person and (laughs) walk seriously? The fact that even existing is a thing is the most bizarre thing there is. So I think that there's a lot of distractions out there to, to take you away from that. Right. Thought. And, and, I, and I mentioned that's this. That's what we're seeing in today's society. I mentioned this yesterday when Bruce Fenton was on. And we, were, we were talking about like extraterrestrials and stuff like that. But I mentioned that when even Socrates, who wasn't a fan of writing anything down, and Plato wrote everything about him, um, there's this idea that when he's talking about like natural physics and Ionian physics and materialism and stuff like that that he said be careful because you start to lose like the spirit of things or the telos that that's when things get dicey and you know people lose their way and there's no purpose then and so people do things out of the ordinary and i think that um right now we live in a very empirical um uh materialistic society and um even talking about metaphysics or metaphysical things will kind of get you the evil eye at this point so your book's important and I think that we need more real research where there's evidence and tangible things that you can point to somebody and be like, here, see, this is what I'm talking about is, is cause there is a lot of nonsense too on the, you know, within these different ancient knowledge or ancient civilizations where there are 
good people doing good research and alternative research and different things, but then you have also people that are just crazy speculating and they don't have any basis for what they're saying. So I think that we need more authors like you, and that's kind of what we try and do on this podcast is get people that have either physical evidence or circumstantial evidence, just some sort of basis for what, what their hypothesis is. I tell you, and I agree because I, you know, the faith is important, but what's important about faith is not having blind faith. Mm -hmm. You're even told, you're even told not to have blind faith. It's Mm -hmm. to have, to have knowledgeable faith. I mean, that's, we have minds for a reason, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) and it's to evolve them. It's kind of my philosophy on it. Number one, you made me think of Plato's cave, you know, because if you look at Plato's cave, when the people were released, you know, because they were grown up thinking the the flickers of the shadows on the wall were reality. Right. And when they were actually released and allowed to see reality, they wouldn't believe it and wanted to go back into the cave right. to look at the shadows. I mean, so sometimes you can't get people to that place. But that is, like you said, our journey. But it's a, it, it's a knowledgeable journey. I kind of look at it as... Uh, there's a classic line, and in, in it doesn't whether it's Eastern or Western tunes, where what we're about is look at New Testament because it's really, to me, it, it, it's really tell, telling because it's about being of service, not being a servant, so to speak. You know, a servant doesn't know what their master is about. In the New Testament, Jesus says, you are no longer servants, you are friends. You know you know all that I'm about. I've told you everything that the fathers told me. He wanted them to be knowledgeable in their faith. You are no longer servants. You are friends. And and it's about, and this is what Keating and others talk about, and it's not just me, becoming not a, a friend of God. And I look at that, it's like when my kids were growing up. You know, when my kids were five, six, seven years old, I've always loved them, and I, when they were little kids, I loved them dearly. But they couldn't be my friends, right? You know, they couldn't be peers. Now they're grown up. Mm-hmm. I love them as dearly, but they're peers. They're friends now. Mm-hmm. I kind of look at that universal consciousness, whatever term you want to use. God, universal consciousness, is waiting for eight billion kids to grow up to be friends. Right. That's you a, know? that's that's <laughs> a good. That's actually kind of you know some John Anthony West type stuff too, because. Uh, he helped co-author a book. I forget something about Dead Saints Chronicles or something like that. Um, right. I'd have to look, but uh, it's about transmuting your consciousness through life and learning these certain lessons and um, altering yourself and like kind of what you're saying, becoming this entity that can transcend this material, physical realm. Um, so yeah, and that's what I'm yeah, and, and, and that's what I'm saying. These cultures were were trying to do twenty thousand years ago around the world. They were trying to do that. Right, right. And I agree with you. So, um, can we do this? Do, do you have an extra 10, 15 minutes? Can we wrap this up on here and then do oh, an extra ten, 10 or fifteen minutes for our Patreon? Sure. Okay. So let's wrap it up here. So you can go check out uh, Donald's book. I have the link down below. And uh, great book. Um, do you think you're going to do an audible at some point? Maybe. Or because there's some pictures and stuff, or 
uh, well, and that's one thing. Well, actually, not as many pictures as the other book when I was writing about symbolism, because you really need pictures to get symbolism sure. across. But yeah, there are actually a, a, a large amount because I understand the visuals of the sites and what I'm talking about here. Uh, maybe at some time, again, this book's only been out about three weeks or so. Right. Probably at some point, uh, you know, I might be able to do an audible and see what's going on with our little pandemic when, if I can get out to talk. <laughs> sure. Well, we'll help yeah. get the word out for sure. And definitely check Thank out you. his book on Amazon. It's on Kindle and paperback. And um, you can order that. Obviously, Amazon's still working with through yeah. all this stuff. So, um, But yeah, check out his stuff. Do you have a website too? Uh, yeah, I have a blog, Donald B. Uh, D, Donald B. Carroll, all one word, uh, dot blog. You just Google Donald B. Carroll and it's a blog site that I put. Uh, I have a Facebook page and I have a blog site that I, you know, I've written a lot of articles of sometimes you don't have enough for a book, but you know, that synchronicity hits and they're like, mm. Oh yeah. You know, so I put it out there. So awesome. We'll check them out on there. Uh, subscribe to our channel, go check out our website, mindescapepodcast.com. And uh, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Mike or slash Mind Escape Podcast. We're going to finish up right here, and then we're going to do an extra uh, little bit here with uh, Donald. Um, and uh, you can check us out on there. It's only $2 a month. It's worth it. We constantly put new and exclusive interviews up there uh, with a lot of our guests. So, and we appreciate the support, and we love everybody. Stay safe out there. And uh, we'll have you on for sure again, uh, Donald. So we appreciate you coming no, thank on. Thank you. All right. See you later, folks.